0: So artists, art historians, art critics all around the world and for many, many years are all, have all pretty much come to agreement that the most famous painting of all time is the Mona Lisa. It's not necessarily the best painting of all time, but at the very least the most famous. And most of you know that it is a piece of art that was uh, painted by Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci and today is in Paris at the Louvre Museum. Louvre, I don't, I don't know how to pronounce it. Is that how you pronounce it? Louvre? Musée de Louvre? I don't know. Uh, And 6 million people visit the Mona Lisa every year. And the director of the museum said that 80% of the guests who come to the museum itself are really only there to see that one painting. So as I'm talking about the Mona Lisa, all of you guys know what I'm talking about. You have a mental picture in your head. But how well do you actually know it? So what color is her dress? What are her hands doing? What's behind her left shoulder? What's her hairstyle? Think about that. Let's take a look at it and see if your, your assumptions are true. So this is, this is the Mona Lisa. This was painted by Leonardo da Vinci, one of the most famous paintings in history. And if it's really that spectacular and it's been known like across all uh, for many, many years and across cultures... We should be examining it pretty closely and knowing the fine details about the painting, right? So if we're going to get into the head of Da Vinci to figure out why he painted and chose the specific strokes of the brush and the way that he painted it, some questions that I'm thinking is, why did he paint her seated and about three-quarters body instead of standing or just her face? Why did he choose these color tones, which to me, in fact, look kind of depressing and boring? If you look at the background, I mean, some of you are far, but... There's like these glacier-type mountain things back here. There's the streams and there's water over here and trees. Why did he choose that as a background instead of, I don't know, something just just color or, or flowers or something else? Why did he put her hand placement, her right hand over her left? Why, you know, people talk about how her mood is ambiguous and that's like, The the mystery of the Mona Lisa That if you look at her from here It looks like she's smiling And if you look at her from here It looks like she's straight-faced Something I never noticed That to me is my biggest question Is why doesn't she have eyebrows? (laughs) Those are shades They're not eyebrows Why, Why did Leonardo da Vinci paint her with no eyebrows? So studies at the Louvre Say that the average amount of time spent Looking at the Mona Lisa Is 15 to 17 seconds Not minutes Seconds which means that six million people every year are traveling to Paris. I'm, I'm sure some of them, many of them are local. But also many tourists are going to Paris, going into this museum from far away from home. They look at it and it's like click, 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 click. And then okay, and they move on. And 80% of those people don't, may not even care to look at anything else. They just leave. The most famous painting of all time. There's a professor at UPenn who, who when talking about the way we look at art... He, he asks this question. He says, when you walk around a library and just stare at the spines of the books, you don't leave saying, oh, I had a really good day reading at the library. So why do we go to the museum glancing 15 seconds at a painting and say that we appreciated the art? Probably didn't. The book of the Psalms is like no other book in the scriptures. It's not necessarily more special. I mean, they're all special, but it's certainly unique. And in my opinion, in the way that I want to talk about it, it's kind of like a museum in a way, an art gallery of not images, but of poetry by biblical authors, a number of writers who expound upon the breadth, the entire breadth of human experience, emotion, and how we relate to God, how we communicate to him, how we know him, how we yearn for him, our feelings and our emotions intertwine with expression. And it's like an art gallery. So in the same way as we can't walk through a library just looking at spines of books or, or look at a painting really quickly for 10 seconds and walk away and really appreciate it, in the same way in the Psalms and poetry, we ought to look closely and to pay proper attention, to do our efforts of reading it slowly, to get into the head of the author if we can to fully understand it. So today, I'm actually going to start in a not traditional way. Usually at this point, I would say, okay, look up at the text, and you, some of you would pull out your phones or your Bibles, and some of us you would read along, and we'd go through it. But I'm actually not going to do that today. I'm actually going to give you time to read it on your own. So pull out your Bible. If you have, if it's only on your phone, that's totally fine. If you have a Bible app, or if you just go to BibleGateway.com, or if you have your paper Bible... And what I'm going to ask is for you, I'm going to give you a few minutes, and I'm going to ask you to read it slowly, to pay attention to the words, the imagery. Think about question. Why did the author write it in the way that he did? What is he trying to express? Now, look up here really quickly. I want to give you a Bible study tip before you read that. Oftentimes, we see biblical poetry as just confusing, and all the symbolism in the Bible, we think, oh, that's just like almost like making it difficult to understand, but that's absolutely not the case. It's, it's confusing because it's an ancient language and we're very far removed from the, lang- uh, from the people and the time. But if you think about art, paintings, poetry, music, they're not trying to disguise truth. They're trying to reveal it in the most pure, special way. Right? If you think about poetry and somebody describing nature, let's say our walk from the tea at Arlington Tea Stop to Beefit right here. I would say, I got off the tee, and I walked down the street, and I entered. A poet might say, I walked down a cobblestone brick, red, deep maroon, weathered, and some of it worn out by time and by the rain. I noticed in the fall of New England, the colors of the leaves changing, and the crisp crunch of the leaves under my feet they're not disguising truth. He's telling reality of the walk from the T here more real and clearly than I am. And so when you get into it, let's look at this as the reality in art that the, that the poet or the psalmist is trying to reveal to us as the people of God. And so take that time to read it. And then hopefully don't take too long because, I, yes, I want to spend two hours, but I'm still bound by 30 minutes. Um, and, and then I'll read. I'm going to just jump in and read it for us. And wherever you're at, you can just come back with me and then we'll jump in. Okay? So let's read it slowly, let's digest it and chew on this, Psalm 19. Okay, so hopefully you've been able to garner something maybe different if you've read this psalm before and you probably will have received things that I'm not even gonna talk about, which is great. But uh, let me jump in. So from verses one through six. So I'm gonna be splitting this psalm up into three sections and the first is verses one through six and let me read this for us up here. The heavens declare the glory of God Its rising is from the end of the heavens in its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So the first verse, uh, first, six verses in Psalm 19, there's a lot of nature imagery. We call this general, general revelation where God reveals himself to us through the world through nature and the sky, and he talks about the heavens and the changing of days from day to day and night to night. He mentions the sun and its stretching rays and how nothing is hidden from its heat. And basically, through this language, if, if I can uh, narrow verses one through six and summarize it to the best of my ability, it's language as communicating that God is constantly at work, that each day and everything that he looks upon is evidence of God's power and glory and his care for us. Day-to-day, night-to-night, God is working. He's present. He's ever-present in our lives, not distant. The psalmist talks about the sun, and he compares it to a bridegroom or a groom leaving his chamber. So we imagine, I mean, usually we think about the, the bride as the beautiful one, but in here we have the groom because, you know, we're good looking too, right? So he talks about the groom, and he's decked out in the best, like, attire he'll ever look and prepared because he has an objective. As soon as he leaves the room, he's going to see his bride and get married, and in the same way, or like a runner running his course, it, the sun comes out in glory in a grand entrance, And I love this imagery of the rays stretching over all the earth, that nothing, that the light touches everything, except the elephant graveyard. (laughs) Only some of you get it. Um, The light touches everything, right? And the heat, nothing is absent. Now some of you are getting it, right? Nothing is absent from its heat. What we see from the first six verses of Psalm 19 is that the psalmist sees evidence of God. He looks around and he notices, he's paying attention to the details of God's care. And so the question that I have to ask myself is what am I not noticing? If I want to get into the shoes of the psalmist, if I want to get into the head of the author, why and how and what kind of place was he in emotionally to pen this psalm? My question is what am I not noticing? Because I don't always look around and think that the skies and the heavens are proclaiming God's handiwork. What are we not noticing? So let's imagine that all of us were in a museum, whether the one in Paris or a different one, and we're walking around and approaching the paintings. But instead of appreciating the work and trying to examine it and see what the artist has done, imagine if we went around and we're all looking for flaws, You'd be the worst museum buddy to go with ever. Just, to, just Your goal is to complain. So we went around and we saw, ah, like that painting's a little bit ugly and dated. And oh, you see that smudge at the bottom? Like that stroke goes against all the other ones and that texture just completely wrecks it. Or this painting is really old and yeah, this museum must not care because they haven't uh, restored this painting in the last hundred years. So look at the dullness of the colors. And we went around and we complained about all the bad things and the fading and the, the illustrations that we just didn't like. And we found ugly or displeasing I, I don't think any of us would do that because generally we go there to appreciate it we, we want to look at the intricacies and the details and the fine lines of the painting and to enjoy and appreciate it I think when we start to stand alongside or in the shoes of the writer of Psalm 19 we notice God and all the details in life frankly the ones that often become annoyances Difficulties, struggles, inconveniences, I wonder if we start noticing those things less and start noticing the ways that God has been good to us more. If it's me, first thing I'm doing, I was like, hey, Alexa, what's the weather today? She's like, today is 70 degrees and rainy. I'm like, oh, F, right? Like, I'm complaining. I'm like, Alexa, how's the traffic to commute? Like, 55 minutes, like 55, right? And I'm already complaining. I haven't even started my day yet. But the details of life that I am visible to are all the complaints about the picture. But if we start getting into the psalmist, learning from him, we start noticing that God puts every little detail in our lives intentionally for our good, to care for us. His rays of sun warms everything, there's nothing that escapes the heat. So do we pause to think about our situation today, about our, our health, our bodies, our physical bodies, our emotional state, our jobs and education, the friends and family we may have, even to the, to the trivial or minute details like your furniture, your room, and what, what you drank this morning, the shower, do we stop to think and realize that even the bed that we are going to sleep in tonight is definitely God's care for you? It's definitely an expression of his love. Oftentimes our default can be either we don't notice because we're not paying attention to the details, or our default is that we like paying attention to the bad ones and to complain. But if we can stand with the psalmist, I, like, I just made a paraphrased version here, and you know, we read six verses in just a couple sentences. We might be able to say, every detail in my life declares the glory and goodness of God. The blessings I have received proclaims his handiwork and his care. Each day and every night that goes by speaks to his love for me. If this psalm really were a painting, I think it would draw our eyes to see the glory, the goodness, the care of our God. The next section is verses 7 through 11 where we see that God Oops, yeah, I'm not there. Uh, we see that God's word is like our greatest treasure and pleasure. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So this is actually the most famous part of, the Psalm, of Psalm 19. A lot of people have memorized and talked about more to be desired are they than gold, fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. And firstly, when I read, read this, and I hope when you guys, when I gave you your time to read it, I hope you were refreshed by that. Because it's not very often in our lives where there's people who are writing, talking about, sharing with us how much they love the Word of God. We need more of that, right? We need more people in our lives who are expressive of their love for the Word of God. And we have a friend in the psalmist here who says it's so great that he would rather have more of the Word of God than win the lottery more than being a millionaire and being able to buy everything and go on vacations and travel the world and do everything fun. And the psalmist writes that the law, his rules, his testimony, precepts, commandments, they're better than fine gold, sweeter than honey. I think all of us have foods in our life that when, maybe when we were younger we used to hate, but now we really like or we enjoy. Um, for me, it's Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts. I hated Brussels sprouts when I was younger, I tried them, and I was like, I don't hate my life enough to continue to eat these things, and, but now I like them, and the story goes that it was actually at a cornerstone CG, this was when I first joined the church and was a part of a young adult CG, and we had a potluck, and one of the sisters, uh, she brought Brussels sprouts for her potluck item, and first I was like, wow, you're a terrible person. <laughs> the, the, the Google Doc said, vegetable dish? And you brought poison, like, why would you do that? And I was close with her, so I gave her a really hard time and uh, didn't, you know, hold back. I was like, you're the worst, like, you brought Brussels sprouts. And, and she put them in the oven and was finishing them, and she was like, no, like, you don't understand, they're so good. I was, and she convinced me or was trying to convince me why they were good. So she talked about the way that she prepared it why she chose the particular spices and ingredients to go along with it, why she's putting it in the oven instead of, I don't know, putting it on a cast iron skillet or just frying it or whatever. And she starts explaining it, and she starts talking about the, the health benefits. It's a good vegetable and the vitamins that it has. And if you use extra virgin olive oil, it'll be a good fat for you. And like just really, really talking up the stupid Brussels sprouts. And so I tried it, and at first, nope, still don't like it. But what changed was that I decided... I'm going to actually take a scoop on my plate and just finish it and to continue to eat it. And even on the spot, so I can't fully explain what changed. Maybe it was her. Maybe it was the mental willpower and, and her explanation. But what didn't change were Brussels sprouts, right? And all the foods that you used to hate, they didn't change. You changed. Brussels sprouts still have the same exact taste that whenever they first came out of the ground from wherever. I changed, And so I started to enjoy them, and what especially was different was that I didn't equate bitterness as a wall of dislike, but I understood bitterness to be a flavor profile, a part of our taste experience. And we, probably all of us have experienced that. We just think, oh, bitter is negative, but not once we start enjoying coffee, wine, beer, vegetables, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, kale. They're all bitter, But I think we start enjoying it when we realize bitterness isn't a bad thing. Bitterness is a flavor, a taste profile that I can appreciate. There are many foods in this world that have a bitter taste and are good to us, and many that have a really, really good taste but are terrible for us, right? And I think the word of God and the word of the ways of the world are kind of like this in contrast, in that the word of God maybe initially has a bitter taste, but it is good for you. But ice cream tastes really good off the bat but it is terrible for you and it wrecks havoc and it ruins you when we read the psalmist say that god's word is sweeter than honey a lot of us are like this is the part of the bible that i disagree with the most i feel oppressed all the time i can't have fun i can't do what i want god's always bossing me around and restricting me from living my life the way that i want and we see this guy talk about how much he enjoys the commandments laws precepts the rules of God. And we often think that it makes life difficult. But he, on the other hand, is saying that I would rather have this than the lottery winning scratch ticket. I would rather have this than the sweetest food on earth. I believe that the psalmist is able to say and write these things because he's sat with the word. He's tasted it, appreciated what it brings. He's digested it and meditated on it. He's felt the benefits to his body. And then he's found himself more satisfied than ever. He's found himself satisfied. Just as we acquire taste with maturity in life, so with the maturation of our souls, friends, we find that God's love is not oppressive, not guilt-bearing, but it's protective. God's word is freeing. God's word is an expression of his love and his care for us. And it's so, so good for us. And so it becomes sweet. It becomes sweeter than honey. It becomes something that we indeed do want and need more than lots and lots of money and things. Surely God's word is more valuable than gold and sweeter than honey. When we taste it and appreciate it, see its good benefits to our souls, and we find that nothing else satisfies us in the way that it will. So the psalmist ends with a very genuine and what I hope is a sweet prayer that I hope we all emulate. He writes in the last third, who can discern his errors? He prays to God, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So he ends his psalm in this way. A prayer of protection of grace. A prayer that I love the fact that he's not just confessing sin. He's saying, God, even the sins that I don't even know that I commit, or I never will know I commit, forgive me for those too. Let no sin have dominion over me. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. And let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. When he says, let it be acceptable, this is sacrifice offering uh, language, offering language. We would think normally there would be an animal or a grain or a fruit involved in this. But he's talking about himself. He's praying, God, my life is an offering to you. Our lives are to be a pleasing sacrifice to God. So, Psalm 19, God reveals to himself in his providential care and the details being written all over the earth in our lives that he cares for us. He gives us his word, which satisfies us like no riches could. And it's God in response that we long to obey and to surrender our lives as an offering. So, how do we apply this? As a side note, Again, more Bible study tips. Psalms aren't necessarily the book where we look for the application right off the bat. Because in fact, the application is oftentimes to read it and to say it, and that's sufficient. It's an anthology of prayers, and when you don't know what to pray, it acts as a prayer book for you, that you could read it and say it out loud. Somebody else wrote that, but you believe it in your heart, and that's application enough. But I think there is a very simple, very, very simple way that I want to apply this a little bit more action-oriented that I want to talk about today. And the word is just pause. If we remember the application, I'm going to explain it, obviously. But as a memory tip, it's just pause. So I think we can apply Psalm 19 by just pausing. So in the first year of seminary, um, I lived in the dorms on campus. And we, uh, it, you know, it's just like similar to college in that you have a dorm and, you know, roommates and then like hallways and you get to meet people. And there's a cafeteria where everyone goes to. And that's where I met my, my close friends and where we got along. And so we would always be eating in the cafeteria together at the hours for the meals. And I had one friend that we, not just me, like all of us, noticed pretty quickly that he never ate his food right away. So he would get his tray and all of us would sit down at different points and he would put his tray down. And he would just like, just take a sigh and he would just stare at his food for a little while. And then he would look up and just look at each person nod, pay attention, comment about, oh, yeah, I did see that, or the sports game was good. Go back to the food, look at the other person. Just, and you just sit there. Like, first, you're just creepy, and, like, just hurry up and eat. And people who he didn't, we started realizing that's just his jam, right? Other people who would sit down with us and, like, hey, you mind if I join you guys? They'd always be like, oh, your food's getting cold. And he's like, yeah, don't worry about it, right? And, like, they, they wouldn't know. But we realized that this is just a pattern. And at first, I hated it. At first, I was like, dude, we got places to go, bro. Like, eat it. And we'd be all done. And he would just be starting in his salad. He's taking three bites out of it. And it was annoying. Like, the the gym's going to close. We got to go play ball. And we'd all be pushing him, pushing him, pushing him. And I realized now, like, he was just pausing. Meals to him were a time for him to settle. He just came from either work or from the library or class. And he would literally exhale, put his tray down, and just observe. He would look at the food to appreciate every meal that he had, regardless of whether it was a crappy day and it was like frozen pizza day at the cafeteria. He would look at the people who he was seated next to and just stare at them and appreciate them and then comment and be in there in the conversation. It wasn't just a stepping stone so that we get full and move on. He was present because he paused. Pausing Gives us room to notice God's providential care for our lives. If we're always scurrying place to place, how could you look at the skies and the heavens and notice God's handiwork? That the sun comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chambers. Pausing allows us to be grateful for things we may never notice. Every dollar that we have, every purchase that we make, our health, our friendships, our education—the list goes on. Even the the minutia, if I and I do this on purpose because it's not nothing is unimportant like you like I said your bed I wasn't joking that's important pausing allows us to pay more attention when we s- and have space to sit with God's word to not just quickly breeze by it because we have somewhere to go but to chew on it to digest it to allow it to feed your soul to be able to say with the psalmist that there is such a sweetness to the word of God. When we pause, we have more room for, and space for prayer, to ask for grace, that, to pray in forgiveness for things of, that, of, of sins that we don't even know we've committed and to ask God to be gracious with us so as to keep us from those things. Pausing allows us to be quiet before God, to appreciate the days and the moments and to say, Lord, my life is a sacrifice offering for you. But when we're always on the go, we're living for us if we're not paying attention. So I just want to say, can we just try pausing a little bit more so that we really can appreciate where this place the artist is coming from and so that we might be able to experience the same thing. Now, all these reasons, friends, point to something so much more important than these disciplines, you could pause, you could be an expert at it. You could be a monk and meditate and sit in a room for four hours and just clear the mind. You could put away your phone and do all of these things and if it's not for a deeper, much more important reason, then it's really not that important. That's not why I'm suggesting it to you. The reason why these disciplines are important is because they can have great impact. The number one, on. Un- changing, unwavering goal and purpose of all of our lives to deeply, intimately, and passionately know Jesus and to know him more. That is the trajectory of our lives, the goal. The end point is to be with him. And when we are with him, we will know him in full. But until that day where we see him face to face, where you can actually touch him and hold his hand, until then, it is our goal to know him deeply. And the Psalms offer that to us so fully, But the reason why is because of the good news of Jesus Christ. The reason we have access to him is because he took the sin and the punishment and the wrath and he bore that on himself and he died a sinner's death. He took on our sin and he gave his righteousness to you. That's why we're able to know him. And in his death and in his resurrection and his promise to come again, we sinners are given life and welcomed into his family. And our eternity is cemented permanently for the future. So let me ask, when we think that's true, if you think that's true, if you believe that in your heart, and if you've been regenerated in your heart and your spirit and your soul, if you can say, my end destiny is heaven with Jesus, not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done, and his love is unconditional for me. Even if I sin, if I fail, if I make mistakes, and if I stay immature and have weaknesses that I never fix, that changes nothing. His love for me is unchanging and unconditional. If we believe that, then surely we can be led to marvel at God's providential care for us, right? Surely we would look at the changing of the leaves and the seasons to see, wow, God is working He is present here. The little details in my life are not unimportant to him. They matter greatly. If we believe that Jesus took on your sin and punishment and he felt the greatest pain that has ever been experienced by a human in history and he loves us so much to go to those lengths, then surely we can hear the words, God's law, commandments, precepts, rules, and think, of course they would be good for me. If he loves me to this extent, that we have the good news of Jesus Christ, then everything he tells me to do and everything that he wants for me is actually for my greatest joy. Not for the restriction of my joy. But completely in contrast to that, for my deepest joy, for my greatest joy, and when we realize Jesus' sacrificial offering, doesn't that make you want to pray with the psalmist? God, I want to sacrifice and offer my life to you. Martin Luther, when commenting on this psalm and just writing his thoughts and feelings about it, he says this, which is a beautiful quote. He says, wealth, and I would add pleasure, success, whatever. Add the idol there. Can heal no wounded spirit. Cheer no sinking soul. Give hope to no desponding mind. Defend against none of the worst ills of life. Point no weary traveler to the way of rest. Give no assurance of happiness beyond the grave. But God's word can do all these things and a thousand times more. So wealth, comfort, security, success, promotions, getting into the school that I want to, getting the car that I want to drive and the the spouse that I dream for, all of these things, they can never heal your brokenness. They can never restore you from depression, and many of you know that right now. They cannot give any hope to someone who feels hopeless. The hardships that certainly and will one day come to your life, it's not going to keep that at bay. When you lose your job or lose a family member or friend, your paycheck is not going to keep that from you. They cannot point any person who is tired and broken and to the young parents who feel like you can't even get sleep or worrying or or those who are weary, they will not give you rest. And certainly none of those things will ever say that you have certainty for when you die where your soul will rest. But God's word can do all these things and a thousand times more. I don't think any of us would trade Anything for that. Our greatest purpose, purpose is to not to get the wealth and security and blah, blah, blah that we want. It's to know Jesus intimately, closely, passionately, fervently. And that's what the Psalms give us. They're the beautiful museum of artwork where we can do that. So I want to encourage you, church, to resolve today even now, to maybe just pause a little bit more, to like the psalmist, look around and praise God in everything that he does and to see his word as our treasure, to pray that his grace keep us and hold us and that our lives would be a fragrant and pleasing offering to him. Let's bow in prayer. Lord God, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for the good news of Jesus. We thank you that if we are a new creation, if we really are a new creation, our eternity is set, and one day we will see you face to face, and instead of turning us away because of our sins, you will warmly embrace us because of Jesus' righteousness. And to a God who loves us that much, to a God who loves us that much, man, do we see and agree with the psalmist that everything around proclaims your handiwork, your goodness, and points to your glory. That your word, your law, precepts, and rules are surely sweeter than honey and so much better than gold. And like the psalmist, we're right with him. If we believe the good news, we're right with him. That to a, to a God, to Jesus, who offered up everything for us, we want to offer our lives back as a fragrant and pleasing sacrifice to you. So Lord, we pray that this word and all of the psalms that we go over through this summer, and I pray that the other ones that we're reading on our own at home that they would show us more of Jesus so that we might know him more. God, we're the people, we're the, we're the people, we're the culture, we're the prime example of the busy, busy, always on the move, never taking a breath. And even if it's a small, little, tiny application and, and, and exercise and, and discipline, I pray that we would take it seriously, that we would pause so that we might be able to notice you more. Commune with you more, speak to you more, thank you and love you more, see more of you in all the details, in the fine lines, and strokes of the paintbrush. Because that's what we want more of you in our lives. God, I do pray for that for us individually, but I especially pray that for us as a church that you would unite us in this purpose to know Jesus to bring him glory. And so, God, we praise you and we love you. Thank you for walking with us and make us more sensitive and keen to you each and every day. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.